Lord willing, but um, chapter 11 sure has been um, sure has been fun. Um, before we pray, let me kind of go over uh, um, a couple things that we have seen. Chapter 9 to 11 is kind of our, I don't know, section. Remember 1 to 3 is about the depravity of man, and uh, he's pretty thorough as he covers um, who we are apart from Christ, first for the Gentiles and then for the Jews, then for everybody, and then we talked about justification um, in chapters 4 and 5, and then sanctification really in chapter 6 through um, 8, and there can be a little bit of a, um, I guess, overflow of each of those in there, but now chapters... Um, 9 to 11, and uh, I, I like it. I think we probably read this, but um, Dr. Thomas Wright said, uh, 9 to 11 is as full as problems as a hedgehog is full as prickles. And uh, I think we felt that when we were trying to figure it out here. Dr. Tom Wright has written, many have given, up, given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning and four of application at the end and then three of puzzle in the middle. But... That's not at all how we feel about it. This is a great section of uh, Scripture. Israel's fall really was in chapter 9, 1 to 33, and then God's purpose in election there, you might remember. Israel's fault then in chapter 10, God's dismay over her disobedience, and now we're in Israel's future in uh, chapter 11. Um, and then the doxology, so rich, uh, in a week or two. Um, we'll be digging into that, 33 through 36, and what a great uh, passage of Scripture. So, really, it's primarily about 9 to 11, about God's faithfulness and the righteousness of God. Shriner says um, the place of Israel is crucial, but that's not the main focus. 9, 6, uh, remember, if you go back, um, is the question that we're still dealing with here um, in 9.6 that says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so, has God's word failed? And it's an emphatic, absolutely not. It hasn't failed, and um, that's been part of the, um, the discussion here. In fact, that would be a ghastly thought. Uh, to think that it has. And so Josh is going to start us um, in 7 uh, to 10 and uh, help us kind of here in um, uh, chapter 9, uh, chapter 11, sorry, um, 7 to 10. But let me read 1 to 6 just as a reminder. Well, maybe to go over five things that he reminded us of 1 to 6, just to kind of catch us up. Um, and these were well even these were even before that from 11 30, from 9:30 to 10:21 Israel has pursued the law by works rather than by faith right we saw that over and over they're going by works that's all the way back in Romans 1 16 and 17 by the at the theme right this is by we're um, salvation is by faith alone and then number 2 and these none of these are very complimentary of Israel though uh, they they tried to establish their own righteousness. And remember, if you go back, probably worth going back to chapter 3. Wow, how many times have we read this? 10 through 12 is a good reminder. As it is written, none, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So certainly, to come to God by our own righteousness is a horrible idea. Refuse to believe that Jesus was the Christ, right? He's the stumbling stone um, to Israel. And then number four, the message has been clearly preached to them. If we go all the way back to chapter two, verse one, the message has been clear. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And then five now, um, God has graciously, and that's what we're going to continue to see today. And I think you feel like this in your own life. Uh, certainly you do. God has graciously invited them uh, to be saved. And even as believers, we just see God's continual grace in our life. And today, even when we look at how he has included the Gentiles, right, as how he's grafted them in, 
it is all to bring Israel back to to himself, to get to see to show Israel that they should be envious now of the Gentiles, and um, that God's going to then um, cause at least a we believe a portion of those Israelites of the Jews to come. Uh, to love and know the true Christ. And again, those are um, hard passages to think through and to um, understand um, completely, but that's that's where we're at today. So chapter 11, let me read 1 to 6. Grant, if you would pray for us, and then Josh will uh, let you read 7 to 10 and go at it. I asked then, has God rejected his people? What, right? What? By no means, what a ghastly thought. That's what you can... Expect, and that's exactly what he says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, who he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. For what is God's reply to him? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Remember, God didn't promise to save all of Israel, but there's this remnant. There's, and, and this is what was even back there. Um, but, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grant, could you pray for us today? Sure. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for being able to freely come together with our brothers and sisters in this local body that you have brought together, Father, and to read about you and to worship you, uh, the triune God. And Father, I pray that um, this discussion would be fruitful from your word, certainly Chapters 9 through 11 are difficult, but I'm so thankful for what they say about who you are, Father. And I think summed up in your kindness and your severity, Father. And so I pray that we would come to know you more fully through these chapters than we did before. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Josh, how about 7 to 10? Yeah, I'll read it and then work back through it. So verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So when we think about verses 7 through 10, I think what's going on here is Paul is addressing an implication of what he has said from verses 1 through 6. As Jerry helpfully summarized, I think there in one, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11, Paul's teaching that God has not rejected his people. He's preserved this remnant. He's preserved this group of people. Uh, he looks back at the 7,000 that he kept for himself, that God kept for himself, that did not bow the knee to Baal. So I think in, in 7 through 10, he's asking, what about the non-elect? What about the non-remnant? What's going on with them? Uh, they were hardened, and we have some of these very challenging phrases to wrestle with, and um, I think maybe tonight I'll link some resources that I found really helpful just to, uh, if you want to dive more into these things. But I, I think when we look at some of these things that Paul's written here and then um, looked back to the Old Testament for these quotes, it was really helpful to listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said, we're dealing and handling things beyond the mind and comprehension of men. And we wouldn't think of going here if it were not in the scriptures. And uh, in a sense, we're standing on holy ground, and we've got to take off our shoes and proceed with great humility and great caution. And uh, We're dealing with the inscrutable mind and will and purpose of God. And so... Uh, I thought that was a great reminder just as we approach some of these things here in the text, and I'm certainly no expert, but I want to start maybe from a 30,000-foot view of what I think could be helpful in explaining what's going on. And uh, this topic, you will probably recall, is not new 
uh, we looked at it back in chapter 9, uh, verse 18. Paul says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so this sovereign predestination of God is, is not a new topic, uh, but it's here. And I think uh, we have two categories here, verse 7, the, the elect and then those that are hardened. And, and I think we have predestination working in two directions, kind of two sides of the same coin. So you can think about these two categories maybe just from a general introductory 30,000-foot view. On the one side, the, there's the predestination to salvation for the elect. We'd call this the doctrine of election. And on the other side, those that are hardened, the reprobate, those predestined to condemnation. Um, but they're different in some ways. And with, with election, sinners receive what they don't deserve. Uh, but with reprobation, sinners receive what they do deserve. With election, sinners receive mercy. With reprobation, sinners receive God's justice. Uh, a few other ways that they're similar and different. With election, sinners are in heaven by the will of God. With reprobation, sinners are in hell by their own will. With election, sinners are not condemned for their sin. With reprobation, sinners are condemned for their sin. And with election, sinners are chosen for salvation. But with reprobation, sinners are passed over for salvation. And there was a helpful article on Ligonier that kind of helped to bring this out a little bit. And the author said, there's some mystery in these doctrines of predestination. But as we've said before, if we don't say God predestines all things, we don't have a God at all. Uh, the first fact is that all mankind is in sin and rebellion against God. God does not have to elect anybody. When God chooses to save a sinner, he puts forth an action to save that person. God works to create belief in us. This contrasts with the doctrine of reprobation. God does not put forth an effort to cause people to sin. When God chooses to bypass a sinner, he does not work to create unbelief in that person's heart. Rather, he lets the sinner go his own way. Um, so, just looking back at the text, verse 7, uh, what then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And I think just trying to think about what this means that some were hardened, Steve Lawson was really helpful. And I think what's, what's more specifically Paul is getting at here in the text is that this person is solidified in the unbelief already present in their heart. I don't think it's God putting evil into their heart. I think it's a a solidifying of the unbelief that was already there. It's not as if God puts evil in there and then condemns them for it. I think this is the person that is obstinate and stubborn, and God hardens that already rebellious heart. In a sense, he hardens the heart in the direction that it's already going away from him. Um, Steve Lawson said, This is not a neutral heart straddling the fence, but one already rejecting God that he hardens. Um, Doug Moo put it this way, hardening refers to the same thing as 918, a spiritual insensitivity preventing people from responding to God. Um, <clears throat> maybe you guys want to add anything before I maybe mention a few applications of this doctrine? It's really good, Josh. You know, and, and I like the way you brought out the uh, the difference between um, election and, and reprobation. That really, God is, if we're hearing you right, God's just allowing people to go the way they truly want to go. And that would have been all of us, like back to where we're coming to here, where, where we shouldn't be arrogant at all, because that's all of us, unless God would have intercepted us off of that path of destruction, we're all going that way. Yep. So it's easy to throw somebody under the bus if we're saying, well, wait a second, what's wrong with them? How do they not get it? We would be in that same, that right. same boat. Exactly. And I think 
you know, that would maybe just be a, an introduction. But in the flow of the argument, as we'll see, as Carter is going to go through, this was all part of God's plan. There was a set time for the hardening of Israel. Um, but if you look over at 25, um, it's, a, it's a, just a partial hardening that's come upon Israel. And as Carter will go through, this is in part of God's glorious grand design. And he will, um, at least at some point, bring Israel back into um, and elects more to salvation. Right now we're living in the time where the gospel has come to the Gentiles. But um, maybe a few applications of this. Uh, we know that God is sovereignly electing and choosing anyone who's saved. Anyone in this room that's a believer, it's a product of God's initiatory action. Um, I also think this helps give us a humble, reverential fear of God. We can also take comfort that he's in control of everything, including the salvation of individuals and nations. And uh, I think it leaves our task to continue preaching the gospel, pleading with God through Christ that he would open blind hearts to respond. Um, also think we can be grateful for the time that we live in redemptive history, that we have access and we're all attending a local church that preaches the gospel. We have the scriptures in a language we can understand, great translations. God's word has come to us, and his spirit uh, has changed many of us at this church through the preaching of his gospel. And I think for that, we can be very grateful. That's really good. Carter, before you get to uh, 11 to 16, Josh mentioned the doxology. Sneak about uh, Basser. This is such a rich passage, and we'll get to it next week or the week after. But look at 33 to 36, and it's as if Paul, as he's writing all this, launches into this just a doxology of praise as he's talking about things that even he, as he's writing about things, that even he doesn't understand completely. At least that's the idea you get when he, when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. So if we don't get all of these things, I don't think that's, we believe even what we don't understand, right? Look at verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is a comforting passage to me, that we, that we praise God for all of these things, whether we completely understand them and grasp them or not, God is so far above us. Remember, his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. His ways are so much higher than our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth. So when we grapple with these, even as Paul's writing them, he launches into this. And I think, Josh, thank you for bringing that out. These are, are hard, glorious passages um, that in a lot of ways we're not going to grasp completely, but, but we want to believe them completely. For sure. Um, Carter, looking forward to 11 to 16 here. So I'll just start in 11 and read to 16. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall beyond recovery? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So just falling off the curtails of uh, verse 10, David is just... Paul quotes David's prayer, which is a prayer that God would um, ha would bring judgment upon David's enemies. And when we read that um, where David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, it's sort of uh, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish mind a um, removal of God's security from them. So what Paul essentially asks, falling off of verse 9 and 10, the prayer of David for judgment to come upon his enemies, Paul is asking, really, if David's prayer was answered in the case of Israel. So if God's judgment um, 
being poured upon his enemies, if that was true for Israel. So does the current hardening of Israel imply that they will never be saved? Or does the current hardening of Israel imply that they can never be saved? So basically, is this a permanent judgment? Is their future hopeless? And what what does that mean for the future of Israel? And I think Paul answers by showing, like, like Josh said, the place or the role of Israel in God's unfolding plan of salvation and redemption. Um, if we go to verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. So Paul denies any idea here at the onset that Israel is beyond salvation. Israel is not beyond God's reach of um, rescuing. And we'll see, we'll see further how Paul answers that. But verse 11, Paul's sequence of thought is almost like a three-linked chain. Um, so the first link of Paul's thoughts in verse 11, Israel's rejection of Christ has led to the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. So Israel's rejection has caused for salvation to be, um, to be brought to the uh, pagan world. So the second link following that, this Gentile salvation that results from the Israel's rejection of Christ, that will cause Israel to become jealous and so lead her to, to her full restoration. And the third link of the chain in Paul's sequence of thought is Israel's fullness. Her full restoration will bring even greater riches for the world. So it's almost like a, um, how would you say it? Um, it's, it's an Australian thing where you throw it. And boomerang. It comes out. Boomerang, yeah. 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 Uh, it ricochets back. Just Paul's argument or his thoughts. So blessing comes to the Gentiles through Israel's rejection. And because of the Gentiles receiving salvation, that leads to a jealousy that is provoked within Israel. And it comes back as their jealousy, their jealousy leads to a conversion to Christ which then brings more blessing to the world, to the Gentiles again. So um, before we dive into, really dive into 11, I just want to note that Paul basically traces the same development twice. And first, it's used generally, it's traced out generally with, um, with in 11, in 11 and 12. Then in verses, going, going down from 13, verse 13, Paul does the same development. He traces it, but with, with specific reference to his personal ministry to the Gentiles. So this verse is just general. So in the first part of 11a, after he denies that Israel is beyond salvation, Paul says, Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So here, Paul is basically giving a theological interpretation of history. Um, of, or historical events, because in no fewer than four occasions, Luke records in Acts uh, the same pattern that Paul draws out here. So basically the pattern follows this, that what does Paul do when he arrives at a town in, during, in his first missionary journey? He goes where first? To the synagogue. He goes straight to the synagogue, and he lays out his arguments. He boldly proclaims the gospel of Christ and then what happens the Jews reject him they throw him out they stone him any any sort of thing like that and then the next day what happens well Paul moves into the secular building next door and he and he relays the message of the gospel to the Gentiles so in Acts 1346 uh, Paul and Barnabas they um, they argue and they defend the gospel in Pisidian Antioch so on Paul's first missionary journey, and I won't read it for the sake of time because I really want to get to the kindness and severity. Um, on Paul's second missionary journey in Corinth and Ephesus, he begins his ministry in the synagogue again. And Jews oppose and reject him again, and Paul opens a mission in the secular building next door in the Hall of Tyrannus where he, where he just he argues and he defends the gospel and he spreads the gospel in the Hall of Tyrannus for years. And he has an amazing ministry to the Gentiles in Ephesus. And the fourth example, and I do want to get to this one, is in Acts 28. Acts 28, verse 28. So, just to give you some background, here, this is when Paul eventually finally arrives at Rome, 
where he's he's already been arrested, so he's allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who's guarding him. And basically, when Paul arrives at Rome, they gather all the Jewish leaders together. And they when they gather the Jewish leaders together, they Paul basically lays out his case. Look, I've been accused of these things, and these things have been said of me. The leaders of the Jews, they tell Paul, look, no one from Judea or Jerusalem has come up and said any evil about you. Um, but everything that you say, all of your views, we want to hear them, but they're violently rejected by everyone around. So we'll give you a hearing, Paul, but um, this is basically the context of where we're at in verse 23 of, um, of chapter 28 in Acts. So when the Jewish leaders, when they had appointed a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people, and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with, their, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their heart, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So, I mean, the pattern, we see it, we just see it plainly in Acts. Luke records it multiple times. Um, the Jews openly reject Paul. He expounds to them. He, he, he defends the gospel going through the law, going through what Moses wrote, what the, how God revealed himself in the Old Testament word, and how that pointed to the Messiah. He brought that to, brought that to the Jewish leaders, because, but because they rejected him, he went to the Gentiles and he related to them. This, and we, we see that the second naturally follows the first as Jesus himself predicted, like the parable of the tenants, where the, ten, the evil, evil wicked tenants, they slew his son. And so what, what, what's the result of that? Well, the owner of the, of the piece of land, he's going to lend it out to the tenants who he didn't know, or basically the Gentiles. So Jesus himself predicted this same sequence of events, and it's, and it's, um, it's very, very clear in uh, Luke's record of Acts. So what is Paul communicating through this? Paul communicates that God sovereignly, like Josh pointed out, God sovereignly uses evil, the evil of Israel's unbelief, their pride in trying to establish their own righteousness, the evil of their unbelief, that he uses that for the good and salvation of the Gentiles. So this first stage in verse 11, that salvation has come to the Gentiles, that has taken place already. But Paul moves to the next stage in, uh, in the latest part of verse 11. So salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And I thought that the, that the jealousy that Paul talks about here was interesting because Luke mentioned several times in Acts the envy that the Jews had toward the apostles for their success, for the success, the um, the measure of influence that they had, the large crowds, their power, all sorts of things. But I think Paul has a more productive type of envy in mind, and so he knows that Israel ultimately desires what God withholds, even in even in David's prayer. So the security that we have in Christ. They, de- they will ultimately desire that. The blessings that we have in Christ, that the Spirit imparts to us, our ability to fight sin by the power of the Spirit, the security that we have in Christ, the justification by His blood. Christ has made propitiation for us. We no longer have this looming doom of judgment over our heads. We're free and we're joyful through suffering. We patiently endure suffering. And Paul ultimately, this is encouragement that the, the Jews will begin to desire this in God's good timing they will desire this and they will become envious of the blessings and it's, it was strange to me that this would be a motivation for Paul's ministry later in, the, uh, in verse 13 and 14 because 
at first I would usually <laughs> kind of take a second look when someone based their ministry upon jealousy. But in looking closer at jealousy or to, or coveting, basically the the bottom line is that coveting by definition is desire for some is the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. So is to covet is not in and of itself evil, but good, whether it's good or evil depends on, upon the nature of the thing that's desired or whether one has any right to its possession. And so this jealousy to obtain the promises of God is really good after all. It's not an unworthy not an unworthy motivation for ministry at all, which was sort of which was something I learned just reading this portion of scripture and this portion or this letter from Paul uh, that jealousy was actually a good and right thing for the Jews to have a jealousy and a yearning for the promises of God, the security we have in Christ. So, um, and also. Not only that we have security in Christ, but we have we're reconciled to God, and we're reconciled to each other. We're able to reconcile and to forgive each other. We have love, the fruits of the spirit, joy, peace. We have patience in suffering. We have peace with God, peace in tumultuous times. They will covet the idea, or Paul's logic um, sets the picture that they will covet these blessings and repent and ultimately believe in Christ. Um, and so, thus the the envy provoked the envy provoked within Israel will ultimately lead to their conversion and as we move forward in verse 12 now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles how much more will their full inclusion mean so here Paul considers and he anticipates the implications of all the appointed Jews responding to the gospel so if Israel's rejection has led to all these promises being imparted to us, the security in Christ, reconciliation to God, peace with God, all these things, if the blessings that we have now as believers have come through Israel's rejection, how much more when Israel is redeemed, when all the appointed Jews that were appointed unto salvation, when they come and respond to the gospel and believe in Christ, how much more blessing will we have? And um, in these greater riches that Paul refers to, I think they refer to uh, life from the dead in verse 15. And there's some, there's some disagreement among commentators, and um, I don't think I'm on par to really expound on that too much. There's some talk about Resurrection Day. That's the actual when the Jews are, um, when the full number of Jews believe then that will kickstart eschatological events which would cause the resurrection of every believer. Um, there's some speculation about that. There's some speculation on whether um, that it would just cause a massive influence of Christianity all around the globe. Um, but I would just leave that out there just for anyone to um, look deeper into. But going on to verse 13. <clears throat> this is the portion that I talked about earlier that refers to... Um, Paul's specific reference to his personal ministry to the Gentiles. So he's going to he's going to use the same development um, in this in in verse thirteen. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Gentile believers in the Church of Rome, who very likely made up the majority. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. So Paul speaks of his own role in God's, in God's purposes and puts an emphasis on the fact that his efforts as an apostle to Gentiles are not merely just because Gentiles are more important or, or because they mean more, but in order that he may sa save some of his own kinsmen. We see that earlier in chapter 9, Paul vehemently wants his people to, to come to Christ. And so Paul, this is... I mean, that jealousy, again, we see it again. The, it almost seems like a righteous jealousy, a good jealousy, uh, desire for the blessings of God. He wants that jealousy to kickstart a conversion of the Jews, of his own people. And so 
Paul lays out um, another, um, uh, for a second time, he lays out the same logic. Jealousy as a motivation for ministry, namely. And so we move to verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So an argument to say that, well, it's like I'm reiterating again that the blessing that just think about the blessings we receive as believers and how much more would the salvation of the Jews bring about as Paul says life from the dead but blessing upon blessing just an increase in um, the blessings that God provides for us in verse 16 if the dough offered as first fruits is holy so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So just the idea, and almost everyone that I've, I've seen or any, anyone that I've read has basically agreed upon the same thing, that if you have a lump of dough and let's say you're making a grain offering or some sort of offering, you have one whole lump, lump of dough and you take one portion of the lump out to consecrate it and to make it holy for the Lord that in and of itself is a representative portion of the whole. So because that is counted as holy and is counted as set apart for God, devoted to God, so is the whole lump. It's all devoted to God. It's all set apart for God. And so basically the, the explanation is perhaps that the root or the first, the, the first fruits of the offering refers to the patriarchs. So they belong to God through the covenant. And so as they belong to God through the covenant, so does the patriarch's descendants. So that would almost, that would um, make the redemption of Israel sure and um, inevitable in God's plan of redemption. Good. So Grant, 17 to 24 here, kind of explains that illustration, right? If, if you would. So we've just seen that through Israel's fall, salvation's come to the Gentiles. The Gentile salvation is to make Israel envious and to lead to her fullness. Carter, thanks for laying that out. And then Israel's fullness, just like the way the Lord would do things, right, will then bring greater riches to the whole world. Um, this illustration is... Uh, is pretty neat, Grant. Um, if you'd read it to us and explain it to us, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, starting in 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishment, uh, nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So we have this wonderful picture from Paul, as Mr. Jerry says, of grafting, uh, pruning, cutting off, and, and grafting back in. But I wanted to go back for a second to address, in chapter 10, I, I basically brought up how we could learn from the Jews um, to not become arrogant um, as it pertains to us today with our own religious beliefs, how we could uh, fall into just religious uh, services rather than than true faith. And it may have seemed out of context at the time, but I think that's where Paul was heading um, this whole time because he understands uh, the sinful heart of humans, that we have this uh, in us that when we are included in something, we seem to want to delight in the exclusion of others and the thing that we're now included into. It just seems to be a tendency in us that we um, can grow arrogant at others' exclusion from something we're included in. And so I think that's what Paul 
is combating here in this illustration, uh, I think that's primarily the focus, is um, him combating one of the most nefarious and common problems that happens with sinful man, which is blindness of our own state while condescension against others. He addressed it in chapter 2 to the Jews. Now he's coming back around to the Gentiles. But in chapter 2, it was hypocrisy. Here it could be called hypocrisy, but he calls it explicitly arrogance and pride in this section. And so if we see Gentiles were inclined to boast because God had chosen them to share in the elective promises that were given to the root, that is the patriarchs, by capitulating to pride, Gentile believers ironically were falling into the same problem that plagued the Jews. Paul warns the Jews throughout Romans of the danger of vaunting themselves above Gentiles because of their elect status. Now he admonishes the Gentiles that they are prone to the same deception. Thus we have canonical warrant for the claim that temptation to pride is not uniquely Jewish, but is fundamentally human. That was a quote from uh, Thomas Schreiner about this section. And so we see that we have a natural tendency towards self-blindness. When we see others fail or get punished for something, we somehow can feel bolstered by that. Maybe you have felt that in your work where you see someone chastised for something and some twisted part of you feels built up because of their being put down. Maybe it gives you a false sense of superiority. I think that's a temptation that we can have, and I think it's a thing that infects nearly every, everyone. It's a human thing, not just a Jewish thing. And so Paul, Paul is warning against that. He's warning against anti-Semitism for despising the Jews because of their rejection. And he gives several reasons um, for why shouldn't the Gentiles be proud. Well, the first reason would be that the root supports them. The root here being their inclusion, uh, excuse me, the root supports them. Their inclusion into the people of God comes from the electing grace of God to the fathers of the faith. The only reason Gentiles are included is because um, the fathers of the faith. And number two, though Paul agrees that the Jews were largely cut off so that Gentiles could be grafted uh, in, the reason was not anything inherently special about the Gentiles over the Jews. God planned salvation history in such a way that Israel would be hardened while Gentiles enter into the people of God. But the Jews were removed um, because of their unbelief. It wasn't something special about Gentiles and their ethnicity that God wanted to just include them so bad he cut off the, the Jews. It was because of their unbelief that they were cut off not because of something more special about the Gentiles. Just as Paul has admonished the Jews to not be haughty based on their election or ethnicity in Romans 2, he reminds the Gentiles that though the Jews were largely cut off so that the Gentiles could be brought back in, it had nothing to do with who they are and everything to do with mercy and grace. And so the Gentiles, we see, stand only by faith. And that, we learn from chapter 3, should exclude boasting. By its very nature, faith should exclude boasting. So chapter 3, verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. And so we see that faith by its very nature shows that we should not be boasting. We were brought in by the electing grace of God. It had nothing to do with any goodness inherent to us. It was all the mercy of God. And so Paul warns in this section... Um, he warns to not be proud, but fear, which is very similar to what he says in another place, 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And the context of that is presuming upon God and committing idolatry amongst other sins while counting yourself part of the people of God. Paul was using the wilderness generation in that uh, example as a warning. And so why should we fear them? Because God did not spare the natural branches. Um, if he did not spare the natural branches, why would he choose to spare you if you embark into unbelief, is what Paul is saying. There's nothing special about you. If he did not spare the natural branches, look at the severity of God. He won't spare you if you embark into unbelief. And so the severity of God is why we should fear. And I think here Paul strikes up what is maybe the anchor of this section and it's a crucial balance between the kindness and the severity of God. Um, we see an example of this when God's describing himself in Exodus 34, verse 6. Um, it says, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So we see the severity and kindness of God brought together. And and today that's an alien thing. Uh, Kindness is assumed and severity is scorned. Things are backwards today. Or we have people that react to the overkindness in our day and they only are severe and they lack all kinds of any kind of kindness and mercy. They're only severe. But I would say more commonly kindness is simply assumed and severity is an alien and scorned thing. Uh, And we live in an age of leniency and confusion. But the right thing, we should want the judge of the earth to be severe. Evil should be punished and that includes us. But we should rejoice in the kindness of God to us in Christ Jesus. And to me, this is what Scott has been uh, trying to teach us in our book club for the past, I don't know, five years that we've been meeting. It has been something he's come back to over and over, and that is gratitude towards God, thankfulness at his mercy, and awe at his severity and his holiness. Scott has come back to that on Monday nights over and over and over, usually in the form of thanksgiving. But the thanksgiving is meaningless if it's not in view of God's holiness and his severity. And J.I. Packer says it this way, the habit of dissociating God's goodness from his severity is a principal cause of confusion about God. The denial of God's severity erases all need to fear God and leave believers with a God who never wants anything bad to happen but is too weak to make it so. He means well but can't protect anyone. Few doubt that God is kind but many deny his justice even though he says that he will by no means clear the guilty. He is slow to anger and gives humans time to repent, but his patience does expire and then judgment arrives. And the two should magnify the, each other. The kindness of God means nothing without his severity, and the severity of God should lead us to rejoice in the kindness all the more. They should just be a continual feedback loop uh, one to the other. And Schreiner says it this way, the kindness of God cannot be truly appreciated as a gift of his grace unless the severity of God is contemplated as the just penalty for forsaking him. And so I think that's the anchor of this passage, or this latter section in our passage for today. And the primary focus is on God, not the attributes of the people, even though that's part of it, the future of Israel, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the warning to the Gentiles that they uh, should not be arrogant. But primarily the focus is on God and his electing grace and his severity and his kindness. And so Paul ends this section um, with a really a dire warning to the Gentiles about continuing in the faith. And he says, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And that, this has been a difficult passage for me to understand, but while I likely think this is referring to Gentiles as a large group of people, and it's not talking about people coming in and out of salvation, uh, the warning principle still stands individually, I think. And Paul never pulls any punches on warning to stay in the faith. He says in Colossians 1, 21, uh, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so there can be a temptation... Um, to overlook these types of warnings as they come up in Scripture. There's a temptation to take passages like Romans 8 or, or 1 John 2.19 that describe perseverance of the saints, and then we uh, spread that like butter over the rough surface of the rest of the text that warn about staying in the faith. Um, and I don't think that's the right response to these types of passages. And to illustrate that, one of my favorite movies is Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce. Um, I don't know if there's multiple ones, but there's this one in particular that I love to watch. It's a wonderful movie. And in one of the more memorable scenes, uh, he and William Pitt, the prime minister, have a race outside. And they're like running through this beautiful garden in the English countryside, and they're racing one another. And uh, after the race, William Pitt makes this comment, why do you only feel the thorns in your feet when you stop running? And that stuck with me it's just what, what a wonderful, you can apply that to so many things, but in this case, uh, it made me think of this from my time running barefoot through the yard um, in South Georgia, 
the lawn burrweed is like the bane of being a young boy in spring running through the yard because it pricks you. There's stickers everywhere. And when you're warning, uh, running, you feel the prick of the stickers, but it's not, you, you, can, you can manage it. But when you stop, there's that deep throb from those stickers that stick you really badly. Um, and it's extremely painful as you pluck them out. And so I think that applies to uh, our running the race well of our faith. I think the warning passages should always prick us, but if we are not running uh, well or, or, or starting to stop, they should stab us deeply. And if someone depart, does depart from the faith, we know they were never really truly in it, but that doesn't mean we retroactively use that principle to ignore the warning passage in, in the Bible. We don't want to make shipwreck of our faith. And so that's a, there's a, a severe warning in this passage from Paul to not grow proud, to not grow arrogant, to not despise those that were excluded, uh, but to see the kindness and the severity of God. The severity of God at their falling, but not because uh, that should make us joyful, but knowing that that could have been us and that God was kind and merciful to us to, in, to include us. There's nothing special about us that we were included. Um, and so I think just to sum up, Paul warns the Gentiles as a whole, do not become proud, do not be arrogant, do not despise the Jews. Do not presume upon God because you are now part of the redeemed community. Dwell on, the, dwell on God's kindness and severity and increase in thanksgiving to him. Oh, really good. And just I think as Scott has taught you guys so well on, uh, on Monday nights, um, I put down in, in my notes, Grant, you have been a great influence on me in always being thankful. And I think that's what this passage should, should teach us and keep us from being um, arrogance. Um, Josh, would you pray for us? And then if you get a chance before next Sunday, uh, feast on verse 25 to um, uh, throughout the doxology to 36, and uh, we'll work on that next week. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your kindness and your severity. Help us to think on these this week. Thank you for your plan of salvation. Lord, thank you for this letter and that we have it and we can read it. Help us to dwell on your attributes and be with us in this main service today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.